Life is full of interruptions. Just when you think you know what's going on, the pastor starts a sermon from the middle of the aisle. Just when you think you know what's going on, life's just going along nice and predictable, and then all of a sudden, well, I've never seen a pastor do that before. Well, now you have. Life is full of surprises, isn't it? Life is full of interruptions. This is a lot. I like this out here. I'm just going to preach from here. Is that okay with everybody? Is that all right? Sorry as my back's turned to you. It's, you know, it is what it is. Thanks for coming today, you guys. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Hi, guys. Good morning. Really glad that you're here. Life is full of interruptions. Life is full of surprises. Just when you think you know what's going on, there's those big moments in our lives that just come and grab our attention. Just, just so to kind of get a feel for it, just a show of hands as we get started this morning. How many of you, uh, in all honesty, like to be interrupted? How many of you like interruptions? Like one of you. Great. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> There's support groups or things like that uh, as well. Life is full of surprises. And that's what's interesting about it is we don't like to be interrupted, but we are constantly interrupted. And the way that we respond to the surprises, the way that we respond to the interruptions in our lives go a long way in determining the direction and the course of our lives. It's a big deal how we respond to interruptions. In, in a very surface level sense, a lot of you were interrupted this last week. Well, we all were with fall weather. Any fall weather fans out there? Anybody big fans of fall? <clears throat> About half of you, and you love fall. There's one group of people, and maybe that's you, that like the first time it gets below 50 degrees, you're like, bring out the sweaters, bring out the vests, bring out the flannel, everything, pumpkin spice everything. I want it all. Just bring on the fall. And then there's the other half of you that the first time it gets below 50 degrees, you're like, it's probably going to snow tomorrow. I hate it. It's coming. (laughs) Thus it begins. Here comes the blizzard. Everything's changing, right? Because we don't like for our schedule, even our weather to be interrupted. Anybody have uh, small children out there or had small children anytime? Any parents out there today? You know what it's like to be interrupted constantly, Right? My wife Tiffany and I, we have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. It was last year, so we have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and we are attempting the grand feat of driving four hours, <clears throat> continuous to Minnesota. You would have think we were going to Europe or something, but we were going to Minnesota, and we're like, oh, this is great. We're in the front. We're rocking the minivan. We're in that stage of life. They've got their books. They've got their snacks in the back. We're good. Like, we're going to get some good windshield time. We are not going to be interrupted, right? And we get literally... I don't know, maybe to the Euclid exit on 235, okay? And literally every 10 seconds, mommy, mommy, daddy, mommy, dad, mommy, parents, are you with me? Can I get an amen, okay? We're constantly interrupted. And I'm like, are you, are you scheming children behind the scenes? Are they like talk before the trip and like, okay, you take the first three miles, right? And then I'll take over after we get around the bend of the interstate and then I'll interrupt, like they're working together or something. It was like every 10 seconds and I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm going to keep track. I'm really going to keep track. So I got out my phone and I actually made a little tally of every single time we were interrupted. Mommy, mommy, dad, for the rest of the three and a half hour drive, do you want to guess how many times that we were interrupted in our conversation? Anybody want to take a guess? 87. 87 times we were interrupted. If this, if this is, uh, well, I think I had my, no, there it is. If, I, if, if, uh, if, if this is us and we're going to Minnesota, 87 times we were interrupted with that big X moment in our lives. 87 times from here to there, on our journey from here to there. Now, don't get me wrong, I love our children, but this was supposed to be a calm ride, right? Whether we realize it or not, and that's just kind of a cheesy example, but whether we realize it or not, interruptions are a part of our lives. It's not just 
once in a while, but I think if we zoom out and look at our lives, there's a lot of those big X moments in our lives that come. And if we're honest, they have made us who we are. For better or for worse, they have shaped us in these moments. You think about it, all the way back to your childhood, you start and you meet your first true friend. Somewhere along the line, you discover that there's bullies in the world. You get a little bit older, and maybe you didn't realize that at the time that that interruption in your story was happening, but you were actually meeting your future spouse. You discover that you're going to have a baby. You have a baby, and it's this interruption in your sleep, for one, among everything else in your life. You or somebody that you love gets a terrible diagnosis. You lose a loved one. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you discover the job that you were created for. For so many of you, the reason that you're sitting here today is because God interrupted your story in that moment when you came to faith. In that moment, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, whenever it was, wherever it was, that God is real. And you felt him as close as the person sitting next to you right now. And you know that God is real. God interrupts our stories. Reminds me of a, a quote from an, another famous theologian named John, not like the Apostle John, but another John that says this, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Anybody resonate with that, right? That's kind of the story of our lives, isn't it? We're all interrupted on life's journey. And for some of you, those interruptions, I get it. They've been painful. And some of you are sitting in the pain and the hurt or the sorrow or the grief of some of those life interruptions. You lose somebody that you love, a, a painful divorce, whatever happened in your story that has thrown you off kilter. And yet, I think because we have so many interruptions in our lives, maybe a better question than, God, why? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why did this happen with my job? Why did this happen with my marriage? Instead of asking why, what if we turned the question and said, God, what are you trying to show me in the midst of the interruptions in my life? What if? What you and I see as interruptions are actually God-sized opportunities. What if God sometimes places certain interruptions in our lives as God-sized opportunities to grow the kingdom? And nobody knows that better than a certain Samaritan man along a lonely Jericho Road. That's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. If you need a Bible, those are free for the taking at the bookshelves all around the worship center. You can pull out your phone and follow along on your favorite Bible app. And if you're going to tweet, just tweet about the sermon. All right? So Luke chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. Everybody say Gospel. Gospel literally means good news, and these are the stories of Jesus' life. So about 80% through the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, which I know a lot of you are, and that's great. We love it that you're here. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and so we're starting a brand new series at all of our Hope campuses and locations today called Stories of Us. No, not the TV show This Is Us, but Stories of Us, and I think you're going to find the Gospel of Luke relatable. The Gospel of Luke is actually the first part of a two-part book. Luke Acts is what a lot of scholars and, and biblical theologians would call it because this was meant to be one book. Why? Because it was written by the same author. Luke Acts was written by Luke the physician that not only witnessed a lot of the happenings of Jesus's life, but then traveled with the apostle Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. So Luke the physician wrote Luke and Acts. And if you read the ending of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you'll know, oh, those were meant to go together, right? 
Just like Star Wars, well, part two follows part one. Lord of the Rings, part two follows part one. They're meant to be put together. But the Gospel of John got slipped in there, and so Luke-Acts is meant to be one book. And what I love about the Gospel of Luke is that it is a book of interruptions, of Jesus constantly being interrupted and responding to those moments in his life. And probably the biggest interruption of all time, when the God of the universe the author of our stories wrote himself into the story and interrupted human history forever, sending his son, Jesus Christ. What I love about Luke is that it's a story of interruptions, very much like the story we're going to start with today in Luke chapter 10. Chances are, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, even if you're not familiar with church, and a lot of you are new to church, and that's, we, we love that. We're a church for people that don't like church uh, here at Hope, and we love it that you're here uh, if you're new. But chances are, even if you're new, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan. It's just kind of one of those stories that's made its way outside the church walls into our culture as well. And what we often do with stories like this is that we don't know the context, If you're ever reading the Bible and you don't understand something, this is my encouragement to you. Read what's before it and read what's after it. And that will shed light on what's in the middle. And so I want to start and shed some uh, new light on a familiar story and what led up to this. So we're actually going to start at verse 25. So if you've got Luke 10 and you're at verse 25, say, I'm there. All right, verse 25. One day an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. In other words, Jesus was teaching and he was interrupted. Okay, if Jesus is preaching, don't interrupt him, okay? But he did, and he asked him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty important question. Jesus replied, before I get to Jesus' response, if you read the Gospels and the more you read about Jesus' teachings, Jesus never answers people's questions. It had to be so frustrating for the people. Jesus always asks or follows a question with a question. Why? Because teachers, parents, mentors, coaches, you know this. What's the best way for somebody to get something, for them to come to the realization themselves? So you don't give them the answer. You force them to come to the answer themselves by asking really good questions. Jesus was the smartest person that ever lived, and that's why he's asking a question. Jesus responds, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus is, uh, this man is asking, what's the most important commandment of all? And the man answered in verse 27, you must love the Lord your God with all your what? Your heart, soul, and strength, and all of your mind, and, everybody say and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. You just answered your own question. Mic drop and Jesus is out, okay? You would think. Jesus says if you had to boil it all down to hundreds of commandments, over 600 Old Testament laws in the Torah, if you had to boil it all down, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, everybody say and, and that's a big and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Between, because loving God and loving your neighbor are, were never meant to be separated. It's not like I'm going to love God and then if I get around to it or if I have time, then I'll love my neighbor. No, these are two sides of the same coin. They go together. It's like Jesus is saying that faith was never, they're never meant to be this separation between loving God with all of your mind, letting it get into the depths of your heart so much so that it overflows into your hands and your feet to go and live it out, to go and be the church. And so a way to think about that is that we're called to love God with all of our 
head, our heart, and our hands. So this is audience participation time in case you're sleeping on me, okay? Everybody get your hands out. Put your Bibles down for a second. We're called to love God with all of our heads, our hearts, and our hands. One more time. Our heads, our hearts, and our hands. You do the hokey pokey and you shake it all about. You kind kind of felt like that. Our head, our heart, with our hands. And I ask you that question to ask you this. What does your relationship with God look like these days? Is, is faith for you primarily an intellectual pursuit? Oh, I know about God. I think he's a really good guy. I agree with Jesus. I like the Bible. It's a good book. I agree with it. I'm, I'm, I'm for all of that. Or has it made its de- way down into the core of your being to where you can't help but take action? That's what Jesus is trying to get at. But instead, watch how the religious expert, you know, the synagogue leader, the pastors, they're always messing it up for everybody, gets in the way. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. We get the advantage of seeing that. Luke lets us peer into the soul of this guy that Jesus is talking to. Nobody in the crowd knew that, but we know that he was actually trying to pull a fast one on Jesus. And so he asked Jesus probably something like this. And who would you say is my neighbor, okay? Instead of being convicted and realizing, you know what, Jesus, you got a good point. I don't love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't follow the law perfectly. He goes into defense mode, and he says, define neighbor, okay? He's just missing it. He's missing the point. Jesus is trying to get him to see in this roundabout way of questioning that nobody follows the law perfectly. Therefore, that's why we need a savior. And oh, surprise, I'm standing right in front of you, sir. He's just missing the forest for the trees. The reason that he was trying to justify himself is because he was trying to say, well, here's the law, and I measure up pretty well. Depending on who you say is my neighbor, I measure up. But we'll later realize it's Jesus who justifies us, which is a legal term, which means that we are made right, not because of how good we are and how perfectly we follow the law. We are justified by what Jesus did on the cross, not in our goodness, but in Jesus's goodness on our behalf. Does that make sense? So he's trying to justify himself. The, the, religi- the, the expert in the law doesn't realize that the point of the law is to point us to our need for a savior. Not to say, well, God kind of grades on a curve, and I'm kind of looking around Hope Des Moines today, and I'm not as bad as them, and I haven't done what they've done. God doesn't grade on a curve. He holds us up to a holy, righteous standard of God, and that's why we need the cross. Amen, brother. I agree with that, okay? None of us measure up. What Jesus is saying is that faith for this expert in the law is primarily up here, and he has what a lot of Christians have. It's called paralysis by analysis. I'm just going to analyze the scriptures and I'm just going to put all these scriptures in my head and know them front to back, but I'm not actually going to do anything with them. And so because Jesus is so smart, he doesn't get into a theological debate. He says, how am I going to get to this guy's heart? You do know that I could preach up here for hours and preach the best sermon in the world and it wouldn't change anything unless the Holy Spirit's involved. And Jesus was so smart that he knows I'm not going to get into an intellectual, theological debate with this guy. I'm going to go right for his heart. And how do you do that? Jesus knew that story is the language of the heart. And I'm going to tell him a story that's going to move faith from his head 
to his heart and hopefully to his hands. And so Jesus tells this story. Look at verse 30. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 30. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, which is a priestly nation as well, priestly sect of Jewish culture, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Everybody say, pass by. Pass by. So it's important to know that the Jericho Road was a popular the traveled road, and it was a winding road. And so it was perfect for thieves and robbers to attack different groups that came there. And it was a well-traveled road by priests because they would go back between Jerusalem and Jericho to do their job. This was like their commute. This was the I-35 of the day, okay? Or the I-235 of their day. And they were going back, you know, to go do the important stuff, to do the religious stuff. So chances are when these priests, these religious leaders saw this guy that was beaten up and left for dead, they were on their way to do religious things, to do their God stuff. And they miss it. They completely miss it. And so they've probably got their scrolls, their Torah out. And the Bible doesn't say that, oh, they walked up to this poor man and they stood over him and they prayed about how they should respond in a godly way. And then they just stepped over him. No, what does the scripture say? They went on the other side of the road, and probably like this, you know, so that I don't have to see them, so that they wouldn't have to be interrupted. So they wouldn't have to be interrupted. Here's the thing. We give these guys a bad rap, and it's like, oh, you know, how could they do this and not help this guy? We do the same thing. We don't like to be interrupted either, right? I was thinking about that this past week. How many times have you been driving down the interstate, and you're focused on your lane, right? And a car comes up to you that kind of forgot they need to get over a couple lanes for the exit. And they come over and they've got their blinker on, right? And I'm sure that you've never done this, right? But they come up and they put their blinker on. And because you're a good, loving Christian person, you say, sure, I'll just rearrange my schedule and get her. Just come on over, right? And you smile and wave. Come on over into my lane. That's fine, right? No, what do we often do? We just look straight ahead, right? What car over there, right? What blinker, right? I'm just going to, now, I've never done that, right? Maybe, maybe you, I've never done that, but maybe you've done that, right? In a much bigger sense, how do you handle the Jericho Road moments in your life? How do you handle life's interruptions, not just a car on the interstate, but how about that annoying person at work? How about those kids that test your patience every day? And in a much more real, practical sense, what about the brokenness and the pain and the hurt that we see around us in our neighborhoods and our cities every day? I think that if we're honest, we don't always, we, probably a lot of us respond just like the priest and the Levite. And one of our responses to the pain and the hurt and the needs and the brokenness around us as followers of Jesus is the churches that we just avoid. Well, if I can avoid it, then I don't have to pretend that those needs exist around me. But if we're honest, I think a lot of us, and especially the world and the nation that we live in today, it's easy to grow numb, and that leads I don't know how to spell all of a sudden. We become cynics. We become none, numb because when I scroll through my social media feed and when I watch the evening news, it just, oh, oh another shooting? Oh, another attack? An, another act of hatred or racism or bigotry? Oh, oh, another act of violence? 
another act of divisiveness in our nation, and it's just really easy to throw your hands up and say, well, I just don't care anymore. Our nation's falling apart, our city's falling apart, there's too many needs out there, and so if I just go numb to it, then I don't have to feel the pain and the brokenness that's around me, even right here in Des Moines, Iowa. If anybody has a right to avoid the pain to be cynical or jaded, it's a man named Benjamin Mee. It's a character in a movie that came out several years ago. Anybody remember the movie We Bought a Zoo? Anybody remember this movie? Okay, a few of you. I think it was one of the most underrated movies at the time. It's got Matt Damon in it. So it's based on a true story about this man named Benjamin Mee, who's played by Matt Damon, which I have to believe if there's ever a movie made about me, it'll probably be Matt Damon. Um, <laughs> we have the same head of hair, so that'll work out really well. But so it's based on a true story, and Benjamin Me is this middle-aged dad. He's got a beautiful wife and two amazing kids, and he's going along, and everything's great in his life until that big moment. His wife unexpectedly dies. And all of a sudden, he is thrust into this interruption in his life where it would be very easy to avoid it, it would be very easy to be numb or cynical about it, but he doesn't. Instead of just trying to avoid it, he... Instead, he starts, decides to start over and move to the country, and he's looking at this potential site in this first clip I'm going to show you at the beginning of the movie, and he's about to experience another big interruption when he finds out what exactly is he's about to buy. Let's take a look. Yay! And that would be the response of my four-year-old daughter as well. Yay! Maybe not you, right? Who would do a crazy thing like that and buy... A zoo. Well, it turns out as the movie goes on, by embracing the interruption, Benjamin not only finds new life and passion, but he rediscovers his purpose and the point of his life. What if we saw interruptions as God-sized opportunities? Benjamin discovered that, and so did the Samaritan. Back to the story. Look at Luke chapter 10. We're at verse 33. So the priest completely missed the opportunity. We read in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine, which you know anything about Jesus' day, very, very expensive resources. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. It says later on he pays the expense for multiple Days. Now, what is going on in this story? What is Jesus doing? Jesus isn't randomly choosing a couple people to make this illustration, to tell this parable or this story. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They couldn't stand each other, okay? It's one thing for me as a Hawkeye fan in how I feel about the Michigan Wolverines today, okay? That's one thing, okay? Just allow me that, okay? Jews and Samaritans, that's on a whole nother level, they couldn't stand each other. So what is Jesus doing by choosing a Samaritan to be the one that gets it right? Jesus is sticking it to the religious establishment. Jesus' harshest criticism in his time on earth was not for the people that were, that were sinful and messed up and broken and had a hard time following the law. Jesus' harshest criticism was for the religious people that thought that they had it all together and were easy to point out the flaws on the outside of other people when they weren't willing to deal with the issues on the inside of their own hearts. Jesus is sticking it to the man. He's sticking it to the religious establishment. The religious leaders, the one that should not have passed by, did. 
and it was their enemy that stopped. The, the no good, godless Samaritans, he was the one that stopped. Jesus says to us today, you may think that faith is about how much you know and how many Bible studies you've attended and how long you've been going to church. You may think that faith is primarily a mental exercise, but Jesus is looking for people that faith has moved from their head to their heart, that it has gripped them to the point where they have to act on it and it flows out of them. But I think if we're not careful, just like the priest and the Levite, you and I, when it comes to these interruptions in our lives, we can develop a pass by faith. When opportunities come our way and we're confronted with the brokenness and the needs around us, particularly here in the city of Des Moines, it is very easy for us to develop a pass by faith. And sometimes it's, you know, avoid it. Sometimes we can grow numb or cynical to it. But often, I think it's a different way. It's we grow passive. We pass by because it's easier just to be passive and not engage. If we're not careful, we can become like the priest and the Levite. And when we see those opportunities, we're just kind of, we become a fan of Christianity. We, it, it's easy to stay at a distance. And we, we walk by and we see these opportunities and say, I'm all for God. I'm all for Jesus. I'm, I'm all for the church. And I'm just going to stand and, and clap and, and be a fan of faith from a distance. I'm never actually going to get in the game and engage my faith. I've, I've met very few people that aren't, I'm for God. I'm for the Bible. I, I love what Jesus has to say. I've got some quotes of his on my Facebook wall and on my fridge at home. I love the Bible, right? I'm, I'm all for getting my kids involved in church and, and hope kids, and that's awesome. I love Sunday school. I, I love student ministry. I'm all for it, right? I love small groups. Yay, small groups. Woo! Lay, yay, serving the poor. I'm all for it. I just don't have time to get personally involved. Just at least not yet. I'm still praying about that. I just don't have time to get personally involved. You know, faith being really personal, it's a little bit more private for me. Now, I totally agree. Yay for the Bible. I'm all for what the Bible says. I'm just not going to rearrange my life and my priorities to what Jesus has to say. I'm, I'm still praying about that. Somewhere there's a disconnect between an engaged faith and a pass-by faith. I'll be honest with you, I don't think the story of the Good Samaritan, I don't want you to walk out of here today and say, well, Pastor John's sermon is that we should all go be nice people. We should all go be good people. I hope that's not what you walk away with here today because Jesus didn't die and defeat sin, death, and the power of the hell to make bad people good. Jesus died and rose again to make dead people come back to life. To, to transform our hearts from the inside out so that there would be no disconnect between our head, our heart, and our hands when it comes to faith. I believe that the story of the Good Samaritan is a challenge to us as a local church here in Des Moines. I believe that it's a challenge to us as the church in America that faces a nation that is more divided, that is more divisive and filled more than ever with violence and racism and hatred and evil. This is a Jericho Road moment for the church in America. And the question is, is the church still relevant? Does the church still have the voice? And is there a third way between avoiding and growing numb to the world that's around us? I believe that there is, and this story says we are called as the church to engage with courage, 
to step out, not with cynicism or passivity, but with the boldness to engage, to speak the truth and love, but to lead with love and service and compassion, and most importantly, with the power of God's love that our world is literally dying to know. Amen? That's our role as the church. Author and pastor Andy Stanley puts it this way in a new book that he's written that I would highly recommend. He says this when it speaks of the church. Imagine a world where people skeptical of what we believe are envious of how well we treat each other and amazed at how well we treat them. I think one of the greatest compliments that as Christians or as the church that we could receive from people that don't believe what we believe, that are outside of the church, would look at the way that we love and serve each other and look at the way that we love and serve them in the city of Des Moines around us, they would look at the church and say, I don't believe what they believe yet, and I don't know what it is with you people, but I want to be a part of that. That they could belong before they actually believe. That they want to be a part of what's going on here because they find a love and a joy that is irresistible in the local church of all places. It's a third way. We don't avoid, we don't go numb to the city and the world around us. We engage because we have the greatest news that the world has ever heard, that God has a plan and a purpose for your life and he loves you with an everlasting love. The time for a pass-by faith, the time for passivity as the church is over. When's the last time that you let your heart be gripped by the things of God to the place where you had to act? I've had multiple of these moments over the last 11 years being here at Hope Des Moines, and we have as a church. I remember distinctly five years ago when we first did Vacation Bible School in this building, it was the first year that we picked up a lot of young kids here from our neighborhoods from very broken, difficult family situations. And everything was going along great. I mean, VBS was cruising along, and then that moment for me was the end of the first night when an eight-year-old boy came up to me and basically told me that him and all of his friends from the neighborhood two blocks away from our church basically hadn't had anything to eat in over 24 hours. No wonder they can't pay attention. And I remember thinking about that and praying about that and going, I'm not going to get up on this stage one more time and preach one more sermon and raise my hands and worship and pray a prayer. <laughs> Knowing that that is going on blocks from where we worship. Let's go and be the answers to our own prayers. Let's go and help bring God's kingdom right here to Ingersoll Avenue. And so we did. A couple months later, we started our WizKids program that we're in the fifth year of now, where we not only feed these children, but we help them with their literacy skills and most importantly, the love of Jesus Christ. It was a Jericho Road moment for us as a church. Nine years ago, there was a lady named Melanie that came to me and you know, there's those Sundays where you're like, I'd rather stay in bed. I have those moments too, I'll be honest with you, right? I don't really feel like going to church today, right? My kids don't want to go to church and I got to drag them out of bed. Do we have to go to church? We have all those moments. And this lady came up to me nine years ago at Hubble Elementary when we were there and she said, John, there is a group of people here in Des Moines that even if they wanted to come to church, they couldn't. There are the hundreds and thousands of people in our community that live in our homeless shelters and halfway houses and in tent camps and under bridges. And it would have been very easy for me to pass by and just avoid it and be numb to it. The problem was is that they're living under the very bridges that I'm driving over to go to worship every Sunday. 
And that's not okay. I can't reconcile that between my head and my heart and my hands. I don't want to be a church that goes through the motions and plays religion. I want to be the church. I want to be a church that's irresistible for the world around it, that says, I want that. And for the last nine years, every single Sunday, we have picked up anybody that we can to bring them and have a hot breakfast, Bible studies, and worship so that I look out and it doesn't matter if somebody's making six or seven figures or it doesn't matter if you slept under a bridge last night. At the foot of the cross, the ground is even. Amen? We're the church. We're the church. And the story goes on and on and on. It's Habitat for Humanity coming to us and saying because of of the, the condition of a lot of homes northeast of us here in the Riverbend area. Graduation rates are plummeting. Kids' health and nutrition and their, their schoolwork is, is declining because they don't have proper shelter. And so in a couple months, we're going to join in with all of Lutheran Church of Hope, and we're going to continue to build these homes, build six homes, and transform, renovate over 40 more homes in the Riverbend neighborhood because that's what it means to be a church, to be for the city to be for the city around us. And I was thinking about that this week. The story of Lutheran Church of Hope and the story of Hope Des Moines is one Jericho Road moment after another, isn't it? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reframes interruptions into God-sized opportunities for the kingdom. How many kingdom moments have you missed because you saw it as an interruption? Well, this wasn't what I planned on. Well, I have never seen a church do it that way before. Well, we've never done it that way. Well, maybe in order to reach people that nobody's reaching, we've got to do things that nobody else is doing. To, to be the church, to, to see them as God-sized opportunities, and it doesn't surprise me one bit. Twelve years ago, when I was thinking about taking this job, <laughs> my wife and I came down to Des Moines, and at the time it was City Branch. Any City Branch? Hope City Branch folks out there? All right. Awesome. Uh, still here, and that makes sense. There's about 12 of us. Uh, half, <laughs> half were my family uh, at that time. And I remember, well, if we're going to take on this job, we should probably come and, and look at the city. And so we just drove into, I think it was the Drake neighborhood, and we drove and we parked on the side of the road and then just chose this random street to walk on. And we said, let's just listen. And I, it, we held hands, and we, we just went on a prayer walk. And I said, honey, let's just listen. And I'd gotten some advice from a mentor about a week before. He said, John, if you're going to take this job at this church in Des Moines, ask God to break your heart. Ask God to break your heart for the city of Des Moines. And pray, God, would you break my heart for the things that break yours? Whether it's refugees, whether it's kids that are falling out of school, whether it's families that don't know how they're going to get their next meal, whatever it is, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. And he answered that prayer. And we listened. And I was thinking this past week, I kind of remember that street, and it looks really familiar because it happens to be right across the street from this big old church building at 2500 University. That building. Which I don't think is a coincidence. Which is what we're going to vote on in a few minutes. And I don't think it's a coincidence, no, we're not buying a zoo, but close. <laughs> There's a reason I chose that movie today. We're not buying a zoo, we're buying a 150-year-old historical church building, which if you've been around the last couple months, you know is a story of divine interruption itself. This is our Jericho Road moment. You, you may not think that it is, but 
it's here. It's not an interruption. It is an interruption in our story, but it's a divine interruption. God has placed this opportunity in front of us, and the question is, what are you going to do about it? And so we've prayed in a month of prayer and discernment, meeting with our later leaders. We announced this to you about a month ago. And since then, I will say this. We took this step of faith and we embraced this moment. And it's like God has just opened the doors to all these opportunities. Nonprofits, faith-based organizations, mission partners that have contacted. We haven't even voted on it yet. And they're saying, we want to be a part of what you're doing because the city is hungry for the love of Jesus Christ. And they're asking, are you going to be a church that avoids it, that grows numb and cynical to it? Or are you going to be a church that engages, even if it's difficult, even if it messes up your schedule, even if it messes up your plans? Are you going to be that kind of a church? Are you going to engage? And so a couple weeks ago, we had this vision night at this new church, which is currently First Christian Church, and they couldn't be more excited that ministry is going to continue there. And so we gathered literally hundreds of you, and I will tell you this, it's not very often where your pastor is speechless. But I was. And I don't know any other way to say it, but the spirit was thick in that place. The spirit was thick. I mean, you could cut it with a knife. It was thick because God's on the move. And I looked out and I saw a group of people. I looked out and I saw a church that has a history of embracing the divine interruptions in our story. You've worshiped in a gym. You're sitting in a former car dealership. And now we're going to buy one of the most historical churches in the city of Des Moines. You are a church that embraces divine interruptions. You are a church that's laser-focused on mission, and I could not be more grateful for that. It's an honor to be one of your leaders. You're a church that puts your personal ideas and opinions and preferences aside and says, whatever's best for mission. And zero in with me here for a second. That's what the priest and the Levite missed. Because when they saw the need, when they saw the opportunity, when they saw the man on the road, they were asking the wrong question. Because as they approached him, I have to believe it went through their minds, what's going to happen to me if I engage? What's going to happen to me if I embrace this opportunity? Well, I might get blood on me. It might get messy. It might get hard. It might mess up my routine. I've got some appointments at the synagogue today. It's going to mess up my schedule. What's going to happen to me? Where the Samaritan got it right. He didn't ask, if I do engage, what's going to happen? The Samaritan is asking the question that we're called to ask, what happens if I don't do something? What happens if I don't engage? What happens if we play it safe? What happens if I avoid it or grow numb to it or pass by? I'd miss the opportunity. Embrace the divine interruptions, and all it takes is a few moments of courage, which is what Benjamin Mee, this character played by Matt Damon, discovers in this film we introduced earlier. He embraces the interruption. They end up buying the zoo, and they go on an adventure together as a family. And along the way, as often happens, his teenage son runs into some girl complications. And so drawing from his own story of courage, he offers him some advice, and followed by, in the next clip, a step of faith of his own. Pay attention to what the woman asks him, why in the world would you buy this place? Pay attention to his response. Let's take a look. All it takes is 20 seconds of insane courage to talk to a girl, 
to take a leap of faith, to stop on the Samaritan road, on the Jericho road, as the Samaritan man did, or to be the church that God's calling us to be in the city. 20 seconds of insane courage. And I've been praying and thinking these last couple weeks, this is one of those moments in the history of our church that I think I'm going to have some explaining to do to my kids someday, and maybe to our grandkids. So you were in a car dealership, and everything was going along well, and then you went and decided to buy this great big historical church building in the middle of the city. Tell me, Dad. Tell me, Grandpa. Kids asking any of us. Why'd you do it? I mean, knowing, knowing, the, knowing the, the, the difficulties that are in front of you, knowing that, that being a church and doing ministry in the city is hard, and it's messy, and you're confronted with the brokenness of our world every single day, knowing that it's difficult, knowing the enormous task that we're stepping into as a church, why'd you do it? channel my inner Matt Damon, maybe my response will be, why not? Because God is already there, and he's already leading the way, and he says to all of us, just like Benjamin, you coming? I'm going this way. Are you coming? I know there's questions. I know there's a lot of Unknowns. I, I, are you coming? I mean, he looks at, at you, and some of you, we love new people at Hope, and this is your first day here, and you're like, are you kidding me? I just got here, and now you're moving on me? And Jesus says to you today, are you coming? Some of you are overwhelmed by life's demands, and you're like, I, I just don't know if I have anything to offer. Some of you are overwhelmed by the guilt and the shame and the burdens of your past that you bring in with you here today. And Jesus says, just bring them. Just come just as you are. You coming? Some of you are, John, I, I, I'm a little skeptical of this whole Jesus thing still, at church thing. I, I just came today. I don't really know if I'm on, Jesus says, you coming? Are you, are, are you ready? <laughs> Tired, broken, scared, or just in need? Are you ready? It's like Jesus is looking at us as a church this morning and saying, ready or not, <laughs> ready or not, just come. Because I'm about to do something that you wouldn't believe. Are you ready? Which is this song that we've been singing the last couple weeks, we've been teaching you, it's called Ready or Not. And if there was an anthem for this moment in our church, we're just going to stop right here in the sermon as we're kind of wrapping up today. Before we do communion, I just want to stop and embrace this moment, this interruption together, listen to these lyrics that we're going to sing. Come now and bring your hopes, your dreams, your doubts, your scars. Are you ready? Are you ready? He's already bought our freedom. He's already paid our debt. He's already done the miracle. He's already conquered death. The message for us today is simply this. God's mission And his accomplishment of that mission is not primarily based on our readiness, but on his power. Amen? Amen. And the power and the life 
transforming power of God's love. He has already defeated death, and Jesus is putting the world back together, and he's inviting us to be a part of that. We've got nothing to lose. We've got nothing to fear. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, we don't avoid the hurt and the brokenness and the opportunities around us. We don't ignore it, and we don't get a pass-by faith. We follow. Come, Jesus says, just as you are. And so I just want to pause right now and I want to invite you to stand as we prepare our hearts and let's sing this song together. Are you ready? Come. 
Are you ready? Are you ready? 